Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Anything But Typical podcast. And boy, are you in for a treat today. We've got an Anything But Typical attorney, but don't tune us off now, please, because you are in for a treat. When you meet Brandy Malazzo, if you ever think about doing any sort of M&A activity, she better be at the top of your speed dial. So, and you'll understand that why in a little bit, but so Brandy, welcome. It's good to have you on here. And um, so here's the scenario, Brandy, you and your son are surfing at Folly Beach and uh, you've just caught this massive wave as, as massive as they can be at Folly Beach, I guess. <laughs> so that's a qualifier. <laughs> so, <laughs> You got your board and you're going back and and you pass somebody and they've got their blankets on the, the uh, sand watching all the cool surfers out there. And somebody says, hey, I think that's Brandy Malazzo of Ascension Law. <laughs> she, they recognize you in your swimsuit. And the question is, is how would you like to have them talk about you? What would you like to have them say about you? Well, first of all, I want to say thank you, Gary and Ben, for having me. It's a great honor and privilege to be talking with you guys about this subject. It's near and dear to my heart as well. So the first thing I would want them to say is if they even know I'm a lawyer, which they may not. And a lot of times, part of probably what will come out in this conversation is sometimes my worlds never mix. And so some folks know me as nothing like a lawyer and other folks know me as only a lawyer. And so if they know I'm a lawyer, I would like for them to say, wow, she's a great corporate M&A attorney. Um, and by great, I mean, she's great at what she does. She picks up the issues. She gets the deals done, but for the right reasons and doesn't over lawyer. And we love working across from her. It's not, um, you know, it's not a who's right, who gets the most points for their client. It's how can we get a win-win for both clients? Um, and second, of course, what I want him to say is, oh, there she goes again with her son. Um, so my now just turned 12 year old and a uh, 80 year old soul and a uh, probably 20 year, 16 year old to 20 year old body um, son is very he's obviously my top priority. Um, and so and then otherwise, there she goes surfing again or hiking Kilimanjaro or um, probably she's got a circle of friends around here doing the same. So. You know, I just want them to know that real great lawyer, but there's also a huge other part of my life. And that is around my family and my friends and knowing that I'm out there with them and also that she's really loyal um, and she's really nice until she's not. <laughs> and usually she's not on behalf of a client and only in the worst cases and, um, some, and to take up for friends and family. Well, you've accurately described my experience with you. Um, you are top shelf. If I was ever doing a deal, you would be the one that had to be in my foxhole. Uh, hands down, no debt, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. But so Ben, walk us through a little bit of her illustrious career and yeah. uh, then we'll go into it. Yeah, so Brandy's the, the founding and managing partner at Ascension Law which uh, she started in 2013. 
Prior to that, has a wealth of, of associate and partner experience in corporate law, mergers and acquisitions. You can tell there's a theme coming of a lot of what we're going to be talking about. Um, and then she's also the co-chair of, of the programming committee of the, uh, the women's executives in Charlotte. Is that correct? Yeah, that's been a couple of years, but yes, I am an okay. women's executive. Yeah, yeah, the Charlotte women's executives. Yeah, yeah. Um, so clearly also getting involved in the community, you've got a bunch of other volunteer experience too. So I want to start on the, the M&A side because this will be the first time on, on this show that we've gone this deep. We've, we've had some people on here that have had their own acquisition or had their own merger, um, but you're bringing a whole different level of, of knowledge to this topic. So I figured we'd start there and just give us some of the basics behind walking through the common things that you see in that, just so the listeners have an idea of where we're starting. So just walking you through kind of a typical deal. What yeah, we are some of the common steps that you see? And, and then we'll go from there of some of the big red flags that you've seen and stuff like that. Sure. So uh, generally what happens is when someone's either generally selling or buying a business, somehow they've gotten put together. You know, that can happen just in their industry. They know folks. Um, sometimes they're out looking to buy or sell and they hire intermediaries like investment bankers or business brokers. Sometimes, as, as you guys know all too well, it's their other advisors that are advising them and saying, you know, you need to be thinking about um, exiting or you need to think about acquisitions. You could really go with acquisitions. And so you have CPAs, financial wealth advisors, um, all commercial bankers even really coming into the play and advising folks. Um, you know, timing's really important. And I know a lot of folks in my industry, not just the lawyers that do the M&A, um, but other professionals like the CPAs and what have you are always concerned about getting in as early as we can, particularly with sellers um, and making sure they're ready to go to market. Um, and then, you know, depending on how they've met the uh, opposing side, I hate saying opposing because it sounds like they're always at each other's throats or something like we are in litigation. I'm not a litigator, don't want to be one. I have great ones, but um, it's a, usually what it's supposed to be in a merger and acquisition deal is it's supposed to be a win-win for both clients. And so sometimes they've met them through their industry, like I say, or sometimes, you know, they just hit it off and there's one. Other times, and probably a lot, the best practice is to have someone go to market and basically have an investment banker or a business broker take your business out to the market and get the best price. Um, at that point, we come to generally, and this is generally when we get brought in, hopefully we get brought in before what's called a letter of intent or an LOI is signed. Um, unfortunately, all too often, just because people don't know what they don't know, we get brought in once there is an LOI our letter of intent. Um, and so what that means is we're looking at that to see if there's anything that really needs to be changed if they've already signed it. If they haven't, we're reviewing it just to see for our side to make sure they've gotten all everything covered and are protected. Then we move into what I call is the fun part for particularly the seller side. It can be quite overwhelming for buyers as well, but generally if you have larger corporations or private equity groups buying, they're kind of used to the buyer side deal, due diligence, but it's where the, buy, the buyer asks all sorts of questions and for all sorts of documents and materials on the company that's being sold to them, the target. Uh, and then if you represent the seller, it's very, very overwhelming because you feel like somebody, you feel like the IRS is in there doing an audit and they're asking for 
financials for anywhere from three to seven years back, 10 years maybe, depending. They're asking for all your corporate governance documents, all your contracts. They're wanting to get a list of all your employees. So it's just really overwhelming because generally if they've gone through a market process, they're already tired, right? Because they probably made a decision to do this anywhere from six months to two years or five years ago. They've gone through the bid and they met with many potential buyers. And so now they're like, you really want us to go through and do this now? When do I just get to sign on the dotted line and be done and get my money? Um, so we always kind of caution sellers at that point. Hold on. We, we do, you can't get fatigued in this part. We need you to be focused for when the deal documents come. So generally kind of parallel or toward the end of the due diligence, what we call the due diligence process. Uh, then we start negotiating, then it gets fun for us. We start negotiating legal documents. There's usually a purchase agreement. A lot of times there's an employment consulting agreement. There's disclosure schedules, which are highly related um, to the due diligence, um, various other ancillary documents. Sometimes there's restructuring that needs to happen. A really, um, a really popular structure right now is for a private equity group to come in and buy a, a really great target. But in order to take, uh, take advantage of tax benefits for both parties, they require us to do what's called an F reorg. So generally we have to create another holding company with the seller and they contribute in exchange shares of the old target company. So there's now a holding company, there's the seller, the holding company and the target company. And that's sort of, there's a contribution exchange with the buying peg or company. So sometimes we have to do that. And then eventually we get to negotiation and we get it done and they get to sign. Um, that's really a very high level summary of a deal. Yep. We can just take that, that five or six minutes and just put that on YouTube by itself. And that'll, that'll be enough education right. for a lot of people. Um, Absolutely. That's a, that's so a great explainer though, of right? really what happens. I mean, yeah. a lot of people don't know, and we will we'll go into a little bit more detail on that, knowing that we've got a pretty robust business audience of entrepreneurs who are either looking at acquiring a business or they're looking at selling either internally or externally at some point. And some of your wisdom, um, because you've got some great horror stories and you've got some great success stories too. But, uh, you know, I think some of those might be of interest, you know, if we hit some highlights on do not do this <laughs> or this is what works great. <laughs> I would love to help whomever I can, whether they're clients or not, because it's an overwhelming process. And a lot of times they come in, particularly in that due diligence phase, and they're like, we don't have any of that. And they're kind of looking like deer in the headlights. And, you know, I guess that's part of being a business owner myself. I think my clients respect that I've done it and I've been through it. And I always say, look, we all know what we know. I know my business. I know the business of practicing law. I have to get help on the accounting. I have to get help on the, and it's probably, it's not a hundred percent perfect on my side either. So you're right. So I'm happy to help if, if I can get some education and, and, you know, hints out there of how to do this more easily. I'm happy to do that. So before we dive deep into, into those weeds, because I really want to get there, but before so I want to get your, your reasoning as far as how you got there, where did you get the interest for corporate law mergers and acquisitions? How do you get to this world? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think I learned a lot of it probably just in the last seven years, seven years plus since owning the firm. Um, I think I, 
first started wanting to be a lawyer, and this is going to sound kind of trite and cheesy, but it is very true. In the seventh grade, um, we had to do a book report. And so I read um, Sandra Day O'Connor's biography, and we had to act it out as well. That was part of our report to the classroom. And so just reading about her, I I think I was hooked from that moment on. Um, What I also didn't really realize until later is my parents have been divorced since I was 15 months old and very close and have been and was raised very close to both of them as well as grandparents on both sides and extended family. But just having seen my parents, it wasn't always the uh, funnest of times, shall we say, early on. Now, later in life, um, they did apologize to one another and got along wonderfully in my later child and adulthood. So it was great. But I think just seeing what the lawyers did always piqued my interest. I think I also decided at that time I would not be a litigator or a family lawyer. I wanted to do law. And I think in my mind, I thought there's got to be a way to be able to do this to help people and not have people go through this stress and strife. Um, And then finally, and certainly not least of all, I did not actually realize this until the day that I was resigning from my last big law firm, Um, where I was a partner and I was resigning to my mentor there, but he'd been my mentor at another big law firm as well. And I had sort of followed him later. I was sitting there resigning to him and he was sitting here shaking his head. And he said, I'm not surprised, um, but I really expected you to be taking your book and going to another law firm. He said, I am a little, but not totally surprised that you're starting your own. Um, And as he's saying that, I'm sitting there going, what am I doing? I have lost my mind. I'm giving up a constant, decent paycheck. You know, and I started like thinking, I need to start pulling these words back into my mouth. What am I doing? Stop. I can't undo this. Um, And as that kind of fear came over me, I had this calm. And then I remembered um, both of my grandfathers with whom I grew up very close to were entrepreneurs, couple times over both of them and so I had just been around them and so I didn't really think about that because they were just my grandfather right I I didn't really think about what they did and its effect Um, one in particular uh, my mom's dad was uh, had a sixth grade education and started at 40 42 started left one industry and started his own um, home building uh, contracting business that serves him and my grandmother who are still alive today. They're in their 80, 89 and 90, about to be 92. And I remember I used to, he used to get calls. He built some apartments and some other real estate properties and he would get calls constantly at home. And I would pick up the call telephone and answer. And they had taught me how to answer. So from the very beginning, I was watching closings. I was hearing about closings. I was hearing about transactions. So I think that was a really, all of those those three factors combined are really what led me to where I am today. Are a big part of it. Yeah. Um, and I got to tell you, I <laughs> I've known you since I came back to Charlotte uh, six years ago, and uh, thank you. I'm thank you for allowing me to be your friend. But um, I didn't know that part of your story, which is really cool. Um, but it does make sense. I mean, you, you couldn't help yourself and. You did have the best mentor, as far as I'm concerned, in that, like the M&A world. Yeah. Hands down, he was the best mentor. Um, so, um, but you're still the one I would call. <laughs> <laughs> I'll call him said that. No, I'm kidding. He was awesome. And then, I, 
And Ben, I forgot to mention, this is the other part, which I think is goes to the heart of who I am and who the team here at Ascension is and what we always put behind our mission, vision, and values that we just kind of rebranded and redeveloped and tweaked with Chris Allen's help. So the other grandfather had several businesses as well, his own cleaning business, but they started a, a restaurant and um, both of my parents were. So I remember several summers I actually stayed. That was my camp, if you will, was staying at the restaurant. So I had my whole area in the back where my coloring books and all of that, but I always wanted to be up with the action. So I was probably always getting in the way. Um, so they were always giving me jobs to do. Um, so I would have to go take the tea pitchers around and the water pitcher and refill everyone's cup. Um, so I really learned to talk to customers that way. Um, I would ring, my grandfather taught me how to ring folks out at the cash register. Um, and I still to this day remember my grandmother, my dad's mom was, she was pretty tough. My grandmothers are probably ha perhaps two of the toughest women I've ever known in very different ways. But I wanted to help her wash dishes. And she was a very much a clean freak and they're in the food industry. So it was heavily regulated. And that was scalding hot water with chlorine bleach in it, right? And she's like, you can't do it, it's too hot. And I'm like, sure, I can do it. And boy, she said, well, you have to do it this way. So I did it. And, you know, the first time my hands were red and burned off, but I was in no way going to tell her I can't do this. So, um, but those were very, very important moments, I think, shaping moments for me. Yeah, it's uh, quite, the, quite the foundation that kind of seamlessly transitions to where you are now. Uh, yeah. Customer service was of utmost importance, obviously. Yeah, yeah that uh, that crosses all industries. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, so Gary had hit on on something earlier that I want to circle back on the the mistakes that you see a lot of people make. So so in the mergers and acquisitions world. So what are some of the red flags that as you're going in and, and trying to help to put the deal together, the red flags where you just you don't know if it's going to work out because of this, or it's something that needs to be fixed before it happens. Um, you know, the first, you never want to get, you want to be thinking about as far as sellers, you want to be thinking about your uh, exit plan, you know, all really. And most people are, they just don't know they're thinking about it. Anytime anybody goes into business, I mean, Ben, you've done this, Gary, you've done this. I'm sure. Adam and the partners at BGW, it's always in the back of your mind. If I go into this, what's the plan out? And generally there's more than one way. So the sooner the better and the more honest and open you can be with your advisors. I think that's huge. Um, the mistakes we see are folks obviously having to fire sell. Gary and I just experienced that with kind of a mutual client friend recently. That's a horrible position to be in, but it happens and sometimes it's unavoidable, but um, but getting, and speaking of advisors, getting great advisors, um, you kind of, you know, get what you pay for. It doesn't have to be super expensive, but probably if you're getting a huge discount or deal, probably not the plan either. And because if you don't do it right the first time, it can come back and haunt you and kind of, you know, but I also, I say that, and I don't want to sound like a hypocrite because, you know, I started this firm too. Um, and I know you're on a budget and you're trying to, you know, save where you can. So when I say that to folks or I'm talking to groups, I always say, but again, you only know what you, you only know what you know, and you don't know what you don't know. So just talk to people. And then as far as specifically the deals, um, obviously have folks review, ha have an attorney, 
look, it doesn't have to be me, but have somebody that's good at M&A or contracts review, you know, a letter of intent and review every document. Um, I have, it's, it turned out to be a great story, but it could have been a train wreck. I had a client uh, that I had done some succession planning, which they didn't equate to M&A and acquisition, you know, a merger and acquisition deal, which I understand because some people don't understand what does your corporate law entail? Is it just contracts? Is it just governance? Does it include M&A? For us, it includes a, a big array of things, including supply chain. But so he texted me. He's like, you happen to know, I'll never forget. It's one December, end of busy season, our busy season, September, generally to December, although that's changing constantly. And he said, you know, good M&A attorney. And I said, <laughs> And I'm talking to one of my partners in the office and I said, yeah, you happen to be texting her. Oh, is that what you do too? <laughs> so my partner and I had a good chuckle and I said, yes. And he had his, he, he'd been using us for contracts and other things, but he'd been using an estate attorney um, on a potential offer, an LOI. And the estate attorney was retiring. He said, we've already done a couple passes at this. Can you take a look at it? So I took a look at it um, I needed to make some changes, but it referenced a um, engagement letter with a business broker or investment banker. And I said, hey, can we see that? I, I know you signed it, but I just want to make sure we're not overstepping because sometimes we overlap in the things that we do and I don't want to step on somebody's shoes. He sent me the, engage, the engagement letter that was signed and it was for, let's just say it was about 7% out of whack on the market for what the commission should have been. And so then my, my attention is diverted from the LOI to this. And my partner and I looked at each other and I said, we got to tell him. And of course, my partner's uh, a couple of years on me. He looks at me, he's like, you can tell him I'll set in a conversation with you. <laughs> this one is your client. So you Man up. <laughs> right, right. You know, he's like, I got it. So we had to tell him and he wasn't really happy and he was really frustrated and he took him a couple of days to come around and I checked back in on him and it was a little too early, but about five or six days later, he came back and he's like, what do I do? I said, first of all, going forward, don't sign anything unless you have me or somebody else look at it. Secondly, you know, I said, we can talk to him and tell him you're not going to look at this deal that he's proposing unless we get some a minute. Long story short, we got it resolved, ended up walking away from that deal. And now he's in a much better deal, but you know, make sure you're having some people and advisors look at stuff, accountants, um, so that's what I see. And then the other thing, if you're going through a deal, particularly again on the seller side, it can be the buyer if it's a one-off buyer, not a strategic or large peg or other buyer. I always tell people, make sure that you've decided who's going to run the business and who's going to run the deal. Because if you try to do both, you are going to get what we call deal fatigue and it's going to happen really early. And the only person it's going to hurt is yourself because you're not going to be, you're not going to have the strength um, and capabilities to be able to get through the whole deal and to be able, able to negotiate with your lawyers, the best deal that you can get. So I always say, pick someone inside that you trust. And a lot of people, you know, don't, they don't want people to know they're in, in, in an M&A deal. And so pick somebody internally or hire somebody externally that you trust and, choose one you run the deal or run the business and let them do the other at least be the main point that's a, that's a that's a really big issue so that's some of the red flags so hopefully that helps yeah absolutely and that that last one's a great piece of advice especially in the entrepreneur world a lot of people try and do everything themselves yes so, yeah that makes sense you had said at the beginning um 
you want to be known as somebody that doesn't over lawyer. So I want to go back to that. What do you mean by that? And then how does that pertain to what we're talking about? Yeah, so that's real important. It's a, it's definitely a passion and a cornerstone of sort of who I am as a lawyer. And it comes from my training at the big firms. And so I spent, I guess, 15 years, a little under 15 years um, at big law firms um, for, I guess, four Two early on, one changed because of geographic location, uh, two others left because of partners. And ultimately I went to a new one um, from a large one because I'd done my time, uh, didn't seem to be a lot of opportunities. And so, but, and I was trying to give it a good go because I'd always see myself as a corporate lawyer in a big law firm and thought that corporate lawyers, great corporate lawyers could only be in big law firms. Um, and so we're taught to find everything, like. I will say the big law firms, I think, are great training grounds on how to do great technical lawyering. But in addition to that, there should also be this kind of common sense business rationale. Um, so I always tell my clients, look, if you give me a contract, I can make it really pretty with a lot of redlining. But at the end of the day, that doesn't serve you. Um, and it doesn't really serve my doesn't serve me or my profession, but over lawyering, what I mean by that is technically you're just writing up everything in favor of your client that you can, that you see in a purchase agreement or some sort of other contract. But the problem is, have you talked to your client and do you know what's important to them? And do they want you spending 10 hours on this contract versus two hours? And I'll never forget a junior partner when I was an associate at my next to last firm we worked well together on a lot of deals and I'll never forget, I marked up a contract for him to review and I went to talk to him about it. And there was an issue that we were negotiating back and forth and I sat down and he looked at me and he was pretty laid back as big firm lawyers go. And he said, you know, Brandy, you're right. He said, but think about your billable hour rate and mine and what we just spent on it talking about it. Do you think being right in that case is what the client would want and is it worth it? Now you don't hear many big firm lawyers saying that, but I really took that to heart. Um, and also being an entrepreneur, I have my outside counsel. I have to spend money on lawyers. And I also have an MBA, uh, international MBA in finance. So I get money, I get numbers. Um, and I don't want to be paying my lawyer to go spend 10 hours to mark up a contract when I have one issue. So I always tell my clients, look, when they come on, I'm going to, I'm going to review whatever you give me and I'm going to tell you what we could change. I'm going to tell you everything we could change and I'm going to tell you the legal consequences. And then secondly, I'm going to tell you what's market. And then thirdly, I'm going to tell you as a business person that knows you at least to the point that I know you at this point, what I would do, but ultimately you have to make the decision in the call, but you just get a lot of lawyers. And I think it's because of sort of, um, we're just a really old antiquated profession that has done things a certain way for a long time. And unfortunately um, it's controlled by a thing called a billable hour. Now that's slowly changing, but I think, and actually it's been proven, Chris Allen, I do a lot of work with, he and I have talked about this and studied this and it's been proven that most lawyers get into the profession because they wanna help people. That, that's the goal. Unfortunately, you get caught up in this world of, you got to, particularly in the big firms, you've got to bill a certain number of hours. 
um, to get through. And you're not really thinking about, is this economical and does this make business and financial sense for my client? You're thinking about your number you've got to hit. And then you just get on this kind of, uh, you know, rat race of trying to keep up with numbers, beat other people. It's competitive and it's on a billable hour. And by the way, what is a billable hour? It's a, it's not even a real thing, right? As we talk about here, our firm's based on, has a different comp model. And I say, guys, a bill, I don't care how many hours you bill. It doesn't mean anything unless you bring it in. And it's most important if you bring it in and the client is happy about it. If you brought in a ton, but you've made a really angry client, that's the worst client development marketing you could ever do for yourself. So when I say over lawyering, it's really about our team, what I do and what I try to get everybody else here to do. And we all don't, we mess up. We're perfect. We're not perfect. We're humans, but try to listen to the client. What are, what's their goal? And then go in and attack the project or the matter with that mind and goal and give them feedback based on that goal. And if, but if you see something that they don't know, obviously you have to tell them if it's not part of their goal, but they didn't know it was in there, then you as the lawyer have to bring it up, but just don't go in there to be redlined and to show how much you know, or to say, show that you know more than the other attorney or that you won an insignificant, irrelevant argument that wasn't relevant to either client. So I have to interject because I hope anybody listening to this understands, yes, Brandy is an attorney. She sounds a whole lot like a common sense business person. Well, she is that too. <laughs> so it's hard to find that. And it's not a blanket statement against all attorneys because I know other attorneys that are also, you know, very business focused, very win-win. Like, did you hear that? Win-win focused. And the, a couple other things that you said that I think are really important. You said, you know, you're a business owner too and that you understand the things that you know and you understand the things that you don't know. And having people alongside you that are good at what you don't know can make all the difference in the world. And the other thing that I think is really important for anybody listening to this thinking, man, you know, yeah, I'd like to sell. Brandy, talk to us about ideally, if that's in your mind, whether it's an internal transition to whomever, whether it's an ESOP or, you know, somebody, a key employee or a bunch of employees or whatever, or a strategic sale to somebody outside. Talk to us about how much time is ideal to get your stuff in a row, because you had mentioned something earlier in this conversation about, oh, we don't have those things, right? And what happens to the price when we don't have those things? Well, generally, it depends on what you're talking about, right? It depends on the industry. But like I said, it's crucial if you can, but we all fail at it. None of us, none of us do this perfectly as business owners. You can't, there's not enough time in the day. There's not enough resources, money, time, or otherwise to get it right perfectly from day one. But it depends on what it is and, you know, <laughs> what's happened. Um, if it's corporate governance documents, uh, this is why we always say, this is another kind of point for folks going about to go through a transaction. We always say in due diligence, you have an option. You can send it directly to the buyer, for example, um, or you can send it through us and then let us review it. So sometimes we can catch things like that and fix them before they're a problem in a deal. If it's corporate governance documents, those can be drafted and handled pretty easily, right? 
you know, things that don't, that are hard to fix and that cause kind of pauses in deals are big indemnification uh, rights on behalf of the buyer against the seller without any caps or baskets or limitations, taxes. So, you know, if you don't have a great CPA all along and something's happened, can it be fixed? It's probably gonna be a lot more costly. Um, if there's some sort of agreement uh, that's been messed up and for some reason the deal brings it to light, if there's litigation, look, I'm a lawyer, I have litigator friends and partners here, but I don't like to litigate and I don't want my clients anywhere near them because it, they will tell you it starts out $50,000 to $100,000 out the door when you're starting either defending or bringing a claim. So it really depends on what the issue is. And then there are tons of people, Gary and Ben, that have had no or relatively little advisors. They're lucky they've had really little small issues and they get ready just a few months before the deal and folks are able to go in there and they're clean. It's just hard to know, right? So the sooner that you have great advisors all around you, and, and I'm here to tell you, it's not easy to find. I, as a business owner, have had to fire vendors and service providers, and not because I didn't like them as a person, but because they couldn't provide what we needed as a firm and as a business. Um, and that's hard, but you have to be willing to do that. And it's not always, um, I have found sometimes it's better to go outside of your circles and do some research and get some real input from folks. Um, that's just kind of best practices. Interview three of them for each kind of area if you can sometimes, unless you have some go-tos that you know and know from clients and otherwise. But so, you know, you want to, like I said, you should be thinking about these things as soon as you start the business. The reality is usually most business owners, startup owners, can't do it all and can't do it at that level from the beginning. There's no shame in that. But if you can take small steps and get those things in order, the sooner the better with great advisors. And then when you go into a transaction, the diligence is clean. It goes quickly. Uh, they see that as a plus and may even pay a premium for it. Yeah, the, the one thing that I'd add to that is, at least from the CPA side, and you know this with your finance background, but ideally you want five years before transactions done so that you can make sure that the tax strategies are set and maximizing for that end goal versus because let's say you're a year and a half out or whatever you don't have, really have time you may even be able to get buttoned up from a legal perspective but from a tax advantage standpoint you're kind of hosed so um yeah, yeah. so anyway that, that was my point on that one no, and the other thing, you brought up a good point, not just taxes, um, sellers that are getting ready to get a lot of money for their business. One thing that we've seen a lot lately is they don't have great wealth and estate plans. So even though you don't think you have a lot, get a great wealth planning, estate planning attorney on board and let them know as you're going through the process, a bidding process, and you start getting amounts of how much might be coming in or how much or even before you go into a process have evaluation done market valuation and know so they can start setting up what i would deem very complicated because it's not my area trust and other estate planning kind of vehicles that need to be done because once you not necessarily once you're under loi but the further you get into a deal process it's hard to get any tax benefits or savings as you guys know better than anyone so that's important also as well, planning estate advisors. 
Yeah. So, Ben, would you mind if I take us down a, a little bit of a rabbit trail? I would expect nothing less, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> so, th this is what I know about Brandy, and and part of her growing up, um, her her dad was uh, on a pit crew in NASCAR. And so I'm just like, I think that's really cool. And so one of the things that I would love to know is you, you know, with all your experiences, are there any things that you learned or you said, oh, heck no, I want nothing to do with that. But anything from that period of time when your dad was involved in that, that spilled over into or applies to what you're doing now? Absolutely. I mean, obviously there's a whole lot of fun going on with regard to any NASCAR race. And um, I don't follow it as much anymore. I actually used to follow it and was a big fan. It was indoctrinated. And to me, I didn't really have a choice, but it was fun. I highly recommend, I've told many people that have just moved to the South in particular, but it's not just in the South. It's big on the West Coast and um, in the North now as well. So I say, You've got to go to one. Uh, you just have to go to one. It's quite entertaining. Folks are partying probably a little too much. I've seen folks crawling out on all fours. Um, but there's also a lot of business that goes on. Um, as you guys probably know, I mean, NASCAR, uh, all the corpor corporations want to be sponsors. So there's a lot of business that's being done. For me, I think there was a lot of fun and I saw that. And my dad and I have uh, very, I have very much have his extrovert personality and adventure seeking um, fun. So that sort of, I remember setting, he worked full time, obviously, but I remember on the weekend setting with him while he was welding together um, when he wasn't working and he was actually going to race. And he always went to the infield with a whole group of friends. Um, and I remember watching him weld together pipes to put on to his pickup truck to make a tent, a camper. And I remember thinking there's no way I would ever stay in a, uh, the back of a pickup truck. Little did I know that I would later uh, camp in tent on top of Kilimanjaro with only six other women and no cell phone coverage or anything else. But so I think that definitely uh, was inherited from him and I enjoyed seeing that. But I think more importantly, growing up in Hickory, just up the road, on Sundays after church and after dinner, the men went into the, the living room or to watch the, the race and you didn't talk to them. You didn't get in front of the, even as a small child, I remember don't stand in front of the TV because you're going to get yelled at by the men. Get out of the way. We can't see. Um, and the women were in the kitchen talking. And I remember thinking, this is really weird. So I would venture back and forth and always kept up with the races. And then, um, went to several, enjoy them. I still enjoy going to them and learning about them. And um, obviously it's pretty big here in Charlotte. So I felt right at home moving back to Charlotte. One thing that's really a funny story about that though, is when I was at one of the big firms, I remembered, and we were doing a lot of private equity group work representing the pegs. And one of my uh, seniors, he was a junior partner at the time and he was a CPA, very serious um, quite opposite of me, right, from a personality perspective. Um, but we were all serious when it came to deal work. And I remember we were working on this deal and it was a private equity group um, that had invested quite a bit in NASCAR teams and all NASCAR related things. And so we got this deal, it's our first deal with them. 
And I remember walking in his office to ask him something and he looked really perplexed. And I said, you know, what's, what's going on? And he told me, he's like, he was, he said, they're talking about this and that. And I just don't really understand it. And so I looked at him, I said, you know, I grew up around this. I'm very familiar and comfortable with this. My dad worked in this industry. I said, would you like me to sit down and kind of give you a, you know, a very high level summary of what you need to know. And he's like, that would be great. And I remember I sat down for like half an hour to an hour and just kind of gave him the run of the industry. But I think it taught me a lot about, I, I didn't understand the separation from men and women. And so I, as a very young child, just kind of butted into my grandfather's and my father's uh, NASCAR watching parties and learned and talked. Um, and I think it just taught me to you know, I don't, I didn't have any issues with that. I didn't see a difference. I didn't see it wasn't, I was a girl. I wasn't supposed to like it or I wasn't supposed to be in there. So I think that served me well in life and, um, you know, a largely still male dominated practice area, I, but it's still fun. I love it. So, and probably a little bit of the adrenaline on deal. So I don't know, Gary, you're probably familiar, Ben. I don't know if you know, but uh, M&A lawyers, we generally call ourselves adrenaline junkies. Um, so there's a little bit of this high that we kind of get, you know, we like that feeling of we've got these deadlines. It's impossible. We're not going to get it done. We've got to get these, all these documents reviewed. And then we do the closings and particularly now, since not long after I started, most closings are electronic. As you guys know, we're sending signature pages, even some digital, digitally signed now across. And so we always get the seller that wants their money. And they're like, when are we coming to your office to sign? And you know, get our money. I'm like, no, no, it doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. Unfortunately, it's very anticlimactic. And so we're going to send it over email. We're going to have a call and then your, your bank account is going to receive the funds. And they're like, oh, that's all. And we're like, yeah, we're, we're right there with you. We, we'd like a big uh, party and closing as well, but that's not how it works these days. So uh, probably that played into it a little bit of the adrenaline rush as well into what I do. Yeah. A little different. First, first company I sold, get handed a check. That's a much cooler feeling. <laughs> I mean, my uh, one of our associates here, he clerked with me for uh, two years and he's now been with us for a couple of years. And, you know, you're working around the clock, particularly in deal season, end of year or other busy times. And you just want that feeling of having close. I mean, I'll never forget. We sat through the first call and he looked at me. He's like, is that it? Are we closed? I'm like, it's done. He's like, that's kind of a letdown. <laughs> I said, well, you get used to it. <laughs> so I've got a suggestion for you that you can still do. I instituted this at BGW. Whenever we signed on a new client, we would have a balloon popping ceremony of all the people involved in it. Now it's harder. Now we, we did send uh, packets of balloons to everybody since we're in COVID. <laughs> but I love it. That is kind of fun. <laughs> I love it. Now I have done some champagne toast virtually. Um, and then of course I've met clients that are in town because sometimes our clients are obviously, as you guys know, not always in town in Charlotte, but I, I have done some closing drinks afterwards with champagne in person. And so that's, that's always great. That's a lot of fun. Nice. Um, so you had mentioned uh, Kilimanjaro. And so talking about experiences that have shaped where you are today. Uh, can you fill us in on, on that story, that experience a little bit? Oh, I'd love to. Um, it's one of my favorite stories. It was uh, definitely a life-changing and altering experience. Um, 
So it was in 2008, July of 2018. I'm a Rotarian and have been for several years. I've, I switched clubs. Um, you know, we started the firm in 2013 and as any startup, I don't have to tell you to, but it was, you know, always something we're busy, always been very busy and grateful, but you know, behind the scenes, you've got all kinds of things going on. Um, we'd gone through a lot of changes and transition in particular, uh, asked one of our equity partners to leave, um, the year before. Um, and so that, you know, just a lot of energy and what have you. And, you know, I've gone through a separation and a divorce, which we get along great, but still, it's still hard. Um, and I had been wanting to do this climb that our Rotary District here in the Western North Carolina Conference, our district does. Um, they'd started it about five or six years before that. And I'd always wanted to do it. But obviously, being an owner of a smaller firm, I didn't feel like I could leave because you want to go. It's, the, the climb itself is six days. And then if you go that far, you really want to spend some time doing a safari or what have you. So I just never felt like I could sort of get out. Well, this year and that year in 2018, the guy who's actually uh, now our district president, but was a good friend. And he kept, he'd been every year, come on, you got to do it. So he started. And I just said, you know what? We've been through a lot. The firm is in a great place. There are great people here to take care of it. I think I might could actually escape for two weeks. So I first talked to my then business partner about it. And she's like, absolutely, you deserve it, go. Um, and talk to one of my other corporate partners to make sure he felt like he could hold, it would be fair to him and he could hold down the fort. He's like, he looked at me, he's a boy scout. And I love him. He said, what? He said, you definitely can go. I have it. He goes, what kind of training have you been doing? Was his first question. I assured him I'd been training when we were good to go. Um, and then it was funny because all the folks had signed up and Mike Walker, who had was trying to get me to do it. He goes, you got to go on this one, Brandy. It's an all women climb. And when he said that, I froze and I said, hmm, that can be really good or bad. Have you ever been on any all women's trips? They're generally, you've got a 50, 50 chance of it being great or awful. There's really no in between. And so Ben, this will bring up a story I was talking to you about previously. Um, then he goes, oh, no, no, no. These women are awesome, Brandy. You're going to love them all. He's like, there's even a lawyer going. And I said, oh, no. An all women <laughs> group and one female lawyer. Um, you know, our reputation sometimes perceives us because nobody really knows us individually. I said, oh, I said, Mike, I just don't know. I don't know if I want to do this. I said, the whole purpose of doing this would be to completely unplug get away from the practice of law and everything in my life right now. He's like, Oh, you're going to, you're going to love her. And he told me her name and her name is Erica Erlenbach. Right. And he said, you're going to love her. You should just call her. I'm going to introduce you to, I mean, he would not stop. I said, okay. So I called Erica and she was really nice. We were both working late one night. We emailed and said, let's talk. She was super nice. And by the way, everybody else has signed on. It is literally three months before we leave. And I said, she was really nice. She even offered, she told me which flight she was, was taking. She said, you can hop on with me and Caitlin, one of her, her, our friends, our joint friends now. She said, here's where we got all our stuff, where the deals are. If you need, I know you have some stuff. So I got off the phone. I hung up looking at the phone. I remember going, well, she seems really nice, but you know, anybody can be nice on a phone call, particularly lawyers, right? So I hung up and she did send me all the stuff. I thought, okay, she follows through. This is a good sign. And I said, okay, I'm just going to do it. So we did it. Um, I did it. 
um, I really was going for the physical challenge to see if I could do it, right? Because there's no guarantee. I knew people who had tried and didn't make it, and even in rotary. Um, and so I did it. And when I signed on, ironically, Mike goes, well, we need somebody to coordinate with the Africa African um, tour resort group that was doing it for us. And, and somehow, Erica still laughs to this day. I don't know how, but I got appointed to do that, even though I was the last to sign on. So all of a sudden, I found myself in the middle of trying to practice law to get out and also correspond with our African host. And then I had to also get money, make sure everybody had paid up on the group. And I'm like, Mike, you've put me in a really precarious position here. I just signed on last. And now I'm asking them for their money. And by the way, I also asked them, hey, guys, you don't know me. I can't wait to meet you and climb with you. But I hope you guys don't mind. My ex-husband is going to bring my son to see us finish. And they're going to be with us on the safari at the end. So I told Mike, I said, these people are going to throw me off the mountain before I even get there. Anyway, we did it. And there was actually one husband that went. He didn't summit. But we went and we all had an amazing time. And those women are still some of my greatest friends. Erica, as you both know, uh, now works with me and is one of my best friends and best partners. Um, and that took a while after we come home. That was never intended. We just kept talking about work. She kept talking about where she was. I'd been honest about where I'd been and what we needed. And it just worked out. And so, and then I have all the other friends that still remain very close. And so we always joke about how we all were going because we're all adventure seekers um, and all mostly at the time, except for one single woman, I was the only one with a child. Well, a biological, we had one that had adopted a son and we all talk about how we went for the physical challenge and the adventure and kind of to be independent and how we actually all ended up really depending on one another and how we've remained really, really close. So um, we always say it were, God had another plan. <laughs> we thought the plan was to summit. Um, it was not, it was to meet each other. So it was phenomenal. You know, you, you said something there that I think is really powerful because, you know, you are, you blaze your own trails, but you're, yet you're a team player, which is really cool. You're not your typical just trailblazer, whether anybody's there or not, you're going to do it. Um, and if you really look at it, I don't know of anybody that's super successful that's done it by themselves. They may want to take the credit, but if they're really honest, it was a team. And you've always been a, a big team player, Brandy. That's uh, one of the many things that I really do admire about you. Um, thank you for taking us through that story, too. So I, I have a funny question that's semi-serious, but we we've talked about mergers and acquisitions. So the question is, is there such a thing as a merger? <laughs> and if so, what is it really? Give you a lawyer's answer on that, Gary. There is <laughs> actually a real merger. You heard me talking about the, the restructuring sometimes that we have to do, particularly on a seller side before a deal's done, where we're just kind of moving companies around a little bit, if you will. That's a real merger. Beyond well, that. Go. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. Beyond that kind of just moving companies around with the same owners, that's a true merger by definition of law, but 
I'll, I'll just stop there. <laughs> How's that? So I'm not a lawyer and I didn't stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night, but I was in private equity and <laughs> I have seen so many mergers and acquisitions. And I remember one that will remain unnamed, but um, it was the merger of equals. It was the largest acquisition in this industry at the time. And I heard the CEO say, his words, not mine, make no mistake, we bought their asses. That was his words. <laughs> now, he was a pretty blunt guy. I really like this guy, but there is that element. You know, the reality is um, there is a pacification, if you will, for anybody that got acquired so that it sounds like, yeah, we're part of, but somebody acquired somebody there is going to be a, cult, a culture that dominates. There are reporting structures that actually will change. You know, guests that we've got on right now, Brandon Lindsay, he, they have actually done a lot of acquisitions, but they really have treated them like mergers, even though they're now part of Hoopa. Um, but they treat they they were working hand in glove, and they they treated them with respect. And I I think that's that's the most important thing. If you're going to do an acquisition, you know, please try to show some respect to whoever you bought because uh, you, you bought assets and people are really important and the cultures are really important. And um, so can you talk to us one, like one thing that I think would be really powerful, you've done a lot of the deals, you know, and I don't know how, tight you stay with some of those clients after the deal's done or whatever, but can you talk us, to us a little bit about the importance of cultural compatibility in thinking about a strategic acquisition? Absolutely. And I think it starts, I mean, Gary, Ben, you guys know this. It's, I'm going to take a phrase from a great friend, a mentor, and a person who's helping us and has been helping us with the last couple of months or almost 18 months now, it's always about the people. So Chris Allen has recently started his own company called It's Always About the People, but it truly is always about people, right? Um, even when I was at Big Wall, um, I think that goes to the heart of why I left Big Wall. Um, you know, it, it, it is about people. And so I do stay in contact. A lot of our um, best referral sources and returning clients are sellers who have sold. I've seen deals break down early on because people didn't click. Um, I've seen deals not happen. I've seen sellers say, I'm not going to take that deal, even though it has more money, because I don't trust. I just don't, I don't mesh with them. I don't trust how they're going to treat my people. Um, now, I always have to give them the lawyerly counselor's advice of everybody cares about their employees, but everybody has a number at some point. So make sure that you, I hear you and know that you're that kind of person, but make sure you understand what you're walking away from. But absolutely, it happens. I've seen it affect prior to deals, people walking away, deals breaking down. Um, and then I've seen it in Badly on the other side, we all the time get sellers who have sold calling us and saying, hey, can you pull out our non-compete and what is exactly we can or cannot do? Um, obviously, we're always advising on the cautious side there. 
but they want out because it doesn't work well. Um, and so I just can't say enough about how important that is. I, I think the private equity groups that do it best have put their best foot forward and put the best people forward and make sure that they know how they're going to integrate that team. Um, and then if it's, you know, buyer, if it's kind of private company to private company, it's important that the buyers understand um, where the seller wants to be, how long they want to be in and where their team goes and how that's going to fit. And that's communicated up front or else hopefully your other assets are really valuable because otherwise that big asset, that most important asset is going to walk right out the door. If the, if the seller of the target company leaves, you can, you can just bet on it that a big part of his or her team may leave behind them. So I, I think it's the most cr critical factor in any business and any deal, it's not, but it's not just the deals. It's, it's what creates businesses and what creates companies. Um, and it's hard though. It's really, it's really hard. You know, I often get asked, surprise, you guys haven't asked me yet, but <laughs> I often get asked, what's, what's the best part of owning your own business? And then what's the worst part of owning your own business? And I always say the answer is the same. It's the people. When it works, it works really well. And both sides are beyond happy and they can achieve anything individually or together as a group when it doesn't work it's miserable for both sides as well right it's not just my side is the employer or the boss but that person is generally probably pretty miserable as well so I just can't say enough about it you've got to know how you're going to integrate teams and you've got to know where their people and the individuals are going to go or else they're going to walk out the door and they've had a lot you know, generally you're buying a target because of the experience, not just the, certainly not for the cash, generally the contracts or the customers. And how do you get those customers, the team that's been there for the last, you know, five to 20 years? Yeah, I think it's really cool that you understand that far better than a lot of other people in your industry, as far as I'm concerned. And again, it's not trying to whitewash everybody with a negative brush, but the reality is, um, the culture matters and the fact that you are spending your own money with somebody like Chris Allen, who's really, really good at understanding culture and helping a founder and the leadership team cultivate that culture because it starts with you, Brandy, as the owner of that, that firm, it starts with you and your, your leadership team. So, um, thank you for doing that. Um, I, I, that was an important point that I was hoping we would address too, because a lot of times people think mergers and acquisitions and they think about numbers and they think about bank accounts and they think about, you know, market share and conquest, but that's nothing compared to, because the cultures make it or break it. Well, absolutely. And, you know, I can think back to, um, I know Gary, you and I talked about why I left big wall and I can give you, very specific reasons and instances about for me individually and personally, um, I can give you, I can generalize it for you. But at the end of the day, it sums it up by, I was following all the rules and doing all the right things, but I didn't feel valued. And if people don't feel valued <clears throat> and sometimes it doesn't work. I mean, let's just be honest. Um, sometimes even when the company or the employer is trying as hard as they can and employees, but sometimes it's just not, it's just not meant to be. And it's not, but you got to at least try because if you're not making that person feel valued, 
they're not going to be motivated to, to do anything for you or themselves or what have you. So um, I think it's, and it's hard. I'm not saying just because I know that it certainly hasn't been easy and I've learned, I've had to learn I'm human and came up in a very different system. And I see, I have to untrain that in my, I've had to untrain it in myself and still untraining it. Um, I see, we love to have folks come over that have big firm experience. However, I will tell you, it doesn't always work because they can't, they can't change their kind of modus operandi from the billable hour. I've done this much work or I have this client into, hey, I've got to share with the team and give work to the team. And I've got to do some non-billable work for the firm or for clients or for other team members. Um, it's just really hard to sort of to mold that, even though the technical competency may be off the charts and out the roof, but we really want the full whole person. So um, yeah, I think it's just critical, but it's hard. It's hard to figure it out because we're all individuals and we're all human. So even if you know that, <laughs> saying it is easy, right? Implementing it and doing it every day and every minute's hard. So I know we've already kept you over over an hour. Um, so I'll make sure that we're sending people to uh, to Ascension Law and to your LinkedIn things like that. But are there any any other final thoughts that you want to share? Anything else that that you're passionate about discussing? Yeah, I would say. Uh, a couple of things. Um, I would say my passions are, and back to Gary's very first question about what would you want people to say to you? I don't have any problem saying that. Um, one of the things I hope they know by my actions, um, not what I say, is that I'm a Christian. And that's my spirituality is extremely important to me. But by being that, I'm also very open and know that it's by actions that, you know, we have friends and colleagues and associates. So certainly, um, have many friends and families of various and all kinds of different faiths and respect those and taught my son to do that. Um, and just hope that we as a world can get back to that scenario altogether. Um, my other two passions are um, definitely women and children. Um, but some people would, I think some people, because I'm a women business owner, they kind of flag me as certain stereotypes and certain political, you know, and you just can't, categorize people because I guarantee you what any one person that doesn't really know me like Gary they would be able to accurately categorize me and so it's really important um, in helping people helping people rise which is sort of where we came up with our name essential law and I didn't come up with it, it was a leadership team and actually the head of our accounting department had the beginning um, idea so really that's my passion um, I love kids and helping them and because I think if you start early you can do a lot more um, and I love seeing people rise particularly when they are in a victim state and they can rise out of very difficult personal or professional situations I think that's huge is to teach other people how to help themselves and help each other and not to stay because change is hard sometimes but I think making change um, the reward is well worth it when needed so beautiful thank you guys yeah we i mean i think we had seven questions or so that we still wanted to be able to get to but that uh <laughs> this has been an amazing conversation so so thank you so much for sharing and going in depth and and uh just coming on and, and joining us today well thank you guys for having me it's an honor and a privilege and look forward to working with you guys some more you're a gift brandy and uh, i can't wait to have other people 
hear your story and just uh, because you're an inspiration to me, that's for sure. And so many people here in this city. So thank you. Um, And we will look forward to getting this thing on the air. Anything else, Ben? No, I think that's it. We'll we'll, uh, we'll put links to, uh, like you said, to, to the LinkedIn and to Ascension, things like that. So no, I think that's everything. Okay. Thank you guys so much. Have a great afternoon. You too. You too.